when you want to build a basilica? What do you do? Pope Leo X, and this is the introduction kind of to the Reformation, Pope Leo X decided that he wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica. Now, the reason for that is the old was in disrepair and was falling apart. And Pope Leo was kind of hamstrung and handcuffed because earlier popes, his predecessors, had squandered the treasury of the Vatican through uh, raucous living, through extravagant um, programs, through extravagant spending, through supporting their children and their families. And yes, that is a true statement. Um, And so there was no money for Leo to build this wonderful edifice. And so what does a pope do when you need money? Well, if you have a really hot commodity where you can generate a lot of income, then you use that commodity. And the commodity that the Pope had was indulgences. Now, Pope Leo wasn't the first one to use indulgences or offer indulgences. Indulgences uh, began uh, earlier in the life of the church. Uh, They were important in the Crusades and partly fueled the Crusades Because if you went and fought, then you could have an an indulgence. An indulgence basically helped take up time or you could buy time to get out of purgatory quicker. And purgatory is the sense that uh, when you die, you have to have residual sin burned off. And we won't even go into all the theology of that. But a pretty hot commodity, I would think, if you could buy something that will pretty much assure that you will get into heaven, that your sins will be burned off. And so now what happens is Pope Leo offers a total indulgence. And what that means is not just for specific sins or some sins, but for all sins, you can get out of purgatory. Now, we don't really have a sense of what that means unless you have a Catholic background. But purgatory is the time that you spend, uh, again, purifying yourself and apart from the work of Christ and his perfection and his perfect work. And so you purify yourself so that you can go into heaven and be in heaven. Well, that was, that was a, a tough thing to swallow. And uh, Luther had a reaction to this because there was a man called John Tetzel. And Tetzel uh, basically had the franchise in Luther's area to sell indulgences. And what Tetzel did was he not only sold indulgences for specific things, but he really expanded the franchise so that everything could be taken care of. And not just for you, you could begin to buy indulgences for your loved ones. And therefore they could be taken out of purgatory earlier. Well, Luther had a pretty strong reaction to that. Uh, Tetzel had a uh, theme or had a jingle. Now, we don't have a lot of jingles these days on TV, 
but most all of us will remember plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Yeah, it's hard to forget. I mean, jingles are the things that grab you and they, they just kind of ground you so that you think about the product. Well, Tetzel had a jingle. And there were several different uh, uh, iterations of this, as people say. But basically, as soon as the coin clinks in the chest, a soul flies up to heavenly rest. Isn't that great? That's good. And so there's the commodity. You go into a, you don't have money and you're, the nations are poor. So you go into these, uh, these countries and you start selling indulgences. And for the rich, they paid a lot. For the poor, they paid incrementally. And for those who couldn't afford, they paid through uh, things that they would do, service and Hail Marys and that kind of thing. Now, one thing I do want you to understand, I'm not making fun of the, Christ- of the uh, Catholic Church. This is just history. This is the way it was. Now, Luther, in his reaction on 1031-1517, he goes to the uh, Schlosskirche, which is the castle church, and he nails 95 theses to the door. And, and that's a tricky one to say, because you can slip on that one. 95 theses. So he nails them to the door, and this really, in a sense, provokes the Reformation. Now, the Reformation was, there was an underlying bubbling of that because the real question, the real um, impetus behind the Reformation was the Word of God. Not tradition, not papal pronouncements, nothing along those lines, but the Word of God. And the Word of God was being translated into the vernacular of the people. Because one way that the church controlled the people, one, the illiteracy was was tremendous. Not even the the monks and priests could read the scriptures. That was generally for the higher ups in the church. And so there was this, this bubbling going on with the translations of the scriptures. And Luther himself had somewhat of a crisis um, point in his life where he was trying to um, gain salvation by his works, but then came across the idea that the just shall live by faith. And that really is the, the message of the Reformation. But the underpinning is the word of God. Well, anyway, Luther nails up these uh, theses And the first one is basically all of life is repentance. That's the first thing. And so he's he's putting down or throwing down the gauntlet that it's not indulgences. It's not this. It's not the other. All of life is repentance. Now, here's something I didn't know. And I don't know if you know. Why would Luther on October 31st nail up this document so that people could read it. Why would that be a strategic thing? Well, the castle church in Luther's Wittenberg, for example, was delegated the rare privilege of granting full remission of all sins. Now listen to this. Frederick the Wise, elector for the region of the Holy Roman Empire that included Wittenberg, took pride in a large collection of relics, over 19,000 holy bones, and 5,000 other items of saints that supposedly provided the basis for granting indulgences 
that could reduce stays in purgatory by over 1.9 million years. These treasures were made available to believers on All Saints Day. November 1st. And by viewing the relics and making the stipulated contribution, the believer could reduce a stay in, in purgatory in purgatory while providing much needed financial support for the Castle Church, the University of Wittenberg, and then uh, for the Pope to build St. Peter's. So you see how strategic that was. You got a lot of people coming on All Saints Day. So now, boom, I'm going to nail this up. People are going to see this. It wasn't that he just picked a day and said, I'm going to put it up, and then willy-nilly, whomever comes, sees it. Now, here's one of the interesting things. The items in, in Frederick's collection included bones, teeth, hairs, and pieces of cloak, and even a girdle from various saints. They also included, included a piece of straw and some strands of swaddling cloths from Christ's manger, a chunk of gold brought by one of the three wise men, a strand from the beard of Jesus, a twig from the burning bush of Moses, bread served at the Last Supper, and seven shreds from a veil sprinkled with the blood of Christ. There was an awful lot of superstition in the church back then. But these were the things that were the foundation for indulgences. Now, the impetus for Luther was the Word of God and his study in the Word of God. And what we have to understand is that the Bible, the Word of God, is not just central to our faith, it is foundational to our faith. And that's what you see as the Reformation moved on. You have Wycliffe, Tyndall, Luther, who translated the Bible into the languages. It was not hidden in Latin It was not taken away from the people. It was put into the hands of the people. And Wycliffe said, not the church speaking through the Pope, but the voice of God speaking through his word is the only authority. Uh, And Wycliffe died of a stroke in December 28, 1384. And in 1414, May 4th, he was declared a heretic. And in 1428, his bones were exhumed and burned and cast into the river Swift. He was such a heretic for bringing the word of God to the people. You see, the compromise was the church was embedded with the state and power was the issue. Not truth, but power. But for Luther, the issue was truth. So anyway, the Bible is central to our faith. It's our foundation. We know what foundations are all about, don't we? Just recently, In Miami, because of a faulty foundation, not down to the bedrock, a building collapsed and nearly 100 people were launched into eternity in a moment because of bad foundation, because of not building on the solid rock. And if the church does not build on the solid rock and stand on the solid rock, we can be in trouble also. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
That's a pretty good promise. To know that in the changing philosophies and the changing things of the world, the word of God stands forever. John 17, as we read, why did I read that? They are not of this world just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in their feelings and their emotions and their experiences because that's going to carry them into this world where they will encounter persecution and death. No, not at all. Sanctify them in the truth. And Jesus himself nailed it down and said, your word is truth. Your word is truth. And so here is the foundation of which the disciples are building the church and Christ is building the church and the Holy Spirit is building the church. And what we have with the word of God is an objective truth, an objective standard that's revealed by God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we have all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out, is inspired by God. It is God written using the authors and their personalities and their styles in and transmitting his word in a way that we can easily understand it in the vernacular of the people, in the language of the people. And so we have an objective truth from God given to us. And then we have Jesus putting another stamp on the word and on the truth in Matthew five seventeen. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he is referring not only to the Ten Commandments, but the entire law of God in the Old Testament. Not the smallest mark in the scriptures will pass away until all is accomplished. And even then it won't pass away. It'll still be there, but we won't need it because the Lord God will be living in our midst. And so we have this great promise that the grass withers, the flower fades, the word stands forever. We are sanctified in truth. God's word is truth. The scripture is breathed out. It's given to us by him. It's an objective standard that he wants us to know and he wants us to see. And then Christ is not going to abolish that. And so we have to understand that there's Jesus's constant appeal to the Old Testament. And the scriptures are so important that who used the scriptures when Jesus was being tempted? Satan. Satan. And what Laura read, they weren't written down scriptures, but they were the word of God quoted to Eve. Satan can use even God's objective standards for his purposes. We have to keep that in mind. But we don't have to fall for it, do we? It's not something that we have to give into. In our culture today and in the world, there's always been the conflict between objective truth that's revealed by God and subjective truth. You know the saying today, there's 
your truth, there's my truth, then there's the culture's truth, and we have uh, subjective truth that wavers and change changes and depends on feelings and philosophy. The problem with that is that your truth and my truth are almost nearly going to come into conflict and which one is true. Which, which one do we stand on? Let me give you an example here. Um, determining morality. I have been in uh, some discussions with an atheist uh, online and his, his big thing is uh, there's no such thing as objective morality. Uh, everything is subjective and the culture determines what is true and what is moral. And I asked him how he would feel about going into a land that saw him as a snack. If the people practiced cannibalism and thought, hmm, this guy would be a pretty good meal for the tribe. So did, are they wrong? Are they? If that's what they determine is their morality, they can eat anybody they want and nobody can say anything against it because morality is subjective if we do not cling to objective truth. You see that? Another example. My truth may trump your truth. If you have something I want and you've worked hard for it and I don't really particularly care to work, then my truth says I can take it. So who are you to say I can't? It's your truth, my truth. Whose truth is true? It's not objective. Or if someone is married to another person and somebody else wants to insert themselves into that relationship and can woo whichever one of the partners, how can we stand and say that's wrong? If it's subjective. Because my truth is I want that. Your truth is you don't really want me to have that. Who's going to win? There's nothing objective. And so you see the milieu that we can have and you can see what's happening with our culture today. And just a, a brief word here. Uh, we all filter scripture through our own grids sometimes and we should not. The scriptures, here it is. Do we, do we interpret the Bible and subject the Bible and its understanding to our, uh, from our culture? that the culture speaks to the scriptures or do we approach it that the scriptures speak to the culture? Which one would we do? Culture is subject, subjective. Scriptures are objective. There's going to be a real problem. And so we measure our culture by the objective truth of God. And so that's something that we as Christians need to understand and we need to do. Now, what is the purpose of the word? Why did God give us the word? And there are several different things. I mean, there could be a whole theology book written about it. I'm going to try and nail it down to some very uh, succinct points. First, Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Sin against you. So folks, if the psalmist stores up the word in his heart is 
What should we be doing? Now, some of us, scripture memory, it's a little bit difficult. You know, we can't really remember things like we used to. And we can listen to and look at and uh, we can have scripture in our home. Uh, and, you know, we've got, uh, actually, our, our artwork is the doxology. Um, my daughter and her husband have um, uh, a scripture on their wall to remind us. We can put it all over the place. We hide it, we, we store it in our hearts, and we, we need to saturate ourselves with it so that we might not sin against God. Uh, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, it shows us what sin is. It's the objective standard. You, know, you shall not commit adultery, not bear false witness, not worship an idol. Those are objective standards that we can easily measure ourselves. If they were subjective, then it's whatever I want to do. Maybe I want to be a six-point uh, Ten Commandment person and not a ten-point commandment person. You know, it's just whatever I want. And so we go to the objective truth. It helps us to understand sin. It also reveals God's purpose. Salvation. Read the story this morning. The purpose that God has is to redeem Adam and Eve and all of us who are their children from the ravages of sin. And so the scripture shows us that purpose. We heard the story this morning. Then we see the plan. God's redemption accomplished over the course of biblical history. How God unfolded that promise that there will be a redeemer and he will crush your head even though you bruise his heel. That proto, that first evangelism, that first promise. And so we see that plan um, unfolding. We also see the personality of God. He reveals himself. We see it in general revelation when we look at these wonderful and beautiful sunsets, when we look at flowers as Poco's brought us, as we look at the ocean, we look at the mountains and we see all of the beauty and all the artwork that God has created and given to us. We see purpose and power. We see order in the universe. And that's general revelation. Then we come to the specifics where we see who he is, his loving kindness. We see Jesus who reveals God through his own life and through his personality. The scriptures also expound the gospel. It's the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of mercy. It's the gospel of forgiveness. It's the gospel that comes to us and says, you can't do it. You can't pay the price. You are not good enough. You cannot be good enough. Therefore, I am going to provide that one for you. That gospel of grace and mercy. And as we come to the table later on, the table of grace and mercy that shows us that God himself paid the penalty. He lived the life that we should live. He died the death that we should die. And we see that unfolded, the gospel of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Your burden is not. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. 
And Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through me, the world might be saved. What a glorious and wonderful thing that we see in the scriptures, because you cannot find that in general revelation. It has to be seen in special revelation. And then we have the explanation of expectations uh, for our lives and for faithful living. We see our morality, our ethics, our sexuality, our conduct, how we treat believers and non-believers. What is the greater concern of our lives? And we see that pattern set out, uh, particularly in the New Testament, where there's the, uh, the, the uh, doctrinal that sets, here's why this is. Now, here's what you should do. The 20-some you, um, oh gosh, I was on a roll. Um, the verses where we are told to, oh, the one another verses, love one another, bear with one another, carry one another's burdens, count one another higher and better than yourself. We see these things. So the, gospel, the, the scriptures tell us how, uh, what God expects of us and he explains it to us and he gives us the foundation for it so that we can live and move and have our being in him and bring glory to him. And so the Reformation, while it is justification, by faith alone, that is the main and major message of the Reformation, we have the example from Luther and the others that it's the word of God that sparks the Reformation or sparked the Reformation. And the word of God should be used in our own hearts to spark a Reformation, to spark our loving the Lord, our moving toward him, our wanting to be with him and wanting to serve him. So let's make some application. What are some applications as we understand the importance and the foundational nature of the word? And, and let me tell you, I know that I'm not telling you anything you don't know. This is just like Christianity 101. And it's a review. So you know this, but it's to encourage each and every one of us that we don't forget this because it will be on a test later. When life takes us down, when life brings us hard, awful things, when we doubt our salvation, when we wonder what's going on, how is God working here? Is my suffering worthwhile? Why am I suffering? If we stay in our own subjective truth, we're going to flounder and fail. But when we come back to the objective truth, we see what God's purpose is. So anyway, application. First application is know the truth. Know the truth. Read it. And if you don't like to read in our day and time, listen to it. You've got CDs. I know for some of you, those are old school. You've got MP3s. You've got computers. You can listen to the scriptures, read the scriptures, expose yourself to the scriptures. Know the truth so well that you will be able to discern error, not just in those teachers out there that are wolves in sheep's clothing that quote scripture, but for those who come and preach and teach you here at Hill City. So that whatever is brought from this pulpit or from a study group, 
you can stand up and say, ah, that doesn't sound right. That does, that's not true. And how do you know the truth? You know how people, um, how bankers are taught to uh, determine a counterfeit bill? They touch it. They feel it. They smell it and they look at it. But they spend hours touching the bills so that they can know the difference between counterfeit and not. We should be spending not just Sunday mornings for an hour in the Word, but we should be spending time throughout the week in the Word, touching it, smelling it, seeing it, to know what is counterfeit and what is not. Satan knows the Word, and he uses it. He used the Scriptures against Jesus in the wilderness. And what did Jesus respond with? The truth, the scriptures. Satan distorted, Christ made it clear. Next, apply the truth. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you uh, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be squeezed into the world's mold. Let the scripture squeeze you into its mold, into who you are to be and who I am to be. Not what the world says, but what the scriptures say. Apply the truth. And then James one twenty two: Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. I know a fair number of people that have deconstructed their faith and they know scripture, but they don't know scripture. It's not been applied properly. And here we are, interestingly enough, studying the difference between knowledge and wisdom, knowledge and application. So apply the truth. Third, Respect the truth. You know, it's said that familiarity breeds contempt. And I don't think any of us here have contempt for the scriptures. But what has been my experience over the years in my own life and as a pastor is that familiarity breeds complacency. Scriptures are not that special to us. Can you imagine what it was like in the Reformation that you had never heard the scriptures expounded in your word and then Martin Luther starts preaching and teaching the scriptures in your own language. That's pretty exciting. We are a Bible-saturated people. And hopefully, or in, in some instances, and hopefully not us, the opposite of the Reformation and the hunger for it and the passion to stand against awful odds and even to die, we can yawn, oh, Scriptures, okay, yeah. Yeah, we, we, kind of, we respect, but we can become very complacent about the scriptures. I want to close with a story of the Kimyal tribe. The Kimyal tribe is a tribe in Papua New Guinea. And I was exposed to this a while back, um, a video, and there are several videos of different uh, tribes and peoples a video of the Kimyal tribe receiving the Bible for the first time in their own language. Now, by their own admission, 
The Kimyas stole, they were polygamous, they were idol worshipers, they lived in darkness, and they were cannibals. And they actually killed the first missionaries that went to the tribe with multiple arrows, hundreds of arrows, because they were afraid that those missionaries wouldn't die as they were bringing the word to them. The Kimyal are wanting or were wanting to have the Bible in their own language as missionaries continued in faithfulness to go and go and go. There was a breakthrough and there was there were leaders that became Christians and then more people became Christians. And then this video shows a plane in the distance, small plane flying into an airfield outside their village. And what you see are uh, the entire village uh, dressed in their their um, indigenous garb. They're gathering, they're dancing, they're singing. So we know they weren't Presbyterians. <laughs> they were feasting. And I saw there's uh, not these in particular, but there was one. They had this huge cauldron. And I thought I saw Stephen there. But there wasn't a banjo, so I went on, moved. And so as the plane lands and as the plane taxis and comes to a stop and as the Bibles are brought out, you see a reception. You see a a group of the elders of the people coming forward and behind them is the entire village. And they had the tribal guard and there were people with raised hands and in tears singing and crying and worshiping in the procession, you see them take those boxes and they take them and they carry them to the spot where they're going to be distributed. And what's interesting with it is they said that in 2010, this is the Kemuel uh, elder, in 2010, this is a year of rejoicing, a year of exalting God's name. And this is the prayer he prayed. Oh God, oh God, The plan which you had from the beginning regarding your Kimyals, which already existed in your spirit, the month that you had set, the day that you had set, has come to pass today. Oh, my father, oh, my father, the promise that you gave Simeon, that he would see Jesus Christ and hold him in his arms before he died. I also have been waiting under that same promise, oh God. You looked at all the different languages and chose which ones will be put into your word. You thought that we should see your word in our language. Today, the day you had chosen for this to be fulfilled has come to pass. Oh God, today you have placed your word into my hands, just like you promised. You have placed it here in our land. And for all this, oh God, I give you praise. Amen. And this man was so emotional and so caught up in this prayer. And then later on, it's, there was a, someone that said, I praise him because he is my God and my father. And because he brought me the truth of his light, that light is eternal. It will last from now to the end of time. And then it ends with a mass procession with the boxes of the Bibles. These people were knocked out, joyous, getting the word of God in their language for the first time in 2010. 
These people didn't look like us. They weren't as tall as us. They weren't as well dressed as us. They would have at one time be referred to as natives. But let me tell you, these people loved God. The word of God had penetrated and, and, and brought salvation to that culture and that society. And in fact, some of the, there was an interview in this video where it was saying that now these older ladies, they are getting the Bible and they are going to pass them on or pass it on to their daughters and to their daughters and to their children and to their children. This word is going to be passed on. These people loved the word. They were not complacent. They were joyful. And so this morning, I think the challenge to us is the Reformation was brought about by the centrality of the scriptures. I know that each and every person here, I know you all a little bit better than I did some months ago. I know you love the Lord and I know you love the word. But are you using it and am I using it the way I should? The way you should? Are we really and truly people of the word? Are we really and truly people who saturate our lives with the word of God? Because as I said earlier, life will chew us up and spit us out. And if we keep only with our subjective ideas of truth and our subjective feelings and not fly to the word, then we are going to be in a world of hurt. And brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, look at your heart. What does the word of God mean to you? Not to worship it as an idol, but to understand it as God's revelation to you, to me and to all of us of his purpose, his personality, his salvation and his requirements. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. We we love it. We thank you for it. We want to devour it. We want it to be a part of our lives. And Lord, there are times when we do become complacent. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, the one who comes and walks alongside us, that you would inflame our hearts. Lord, we live with 10 Bibles at home. And the Kemyals only had one each. Father, we are, God, we are Bible saturated, but help us to be gospel saturated. Not just hearers of the word, but doers also. You speak to us through your word. It goes into the very depths of our being. It convicts us and it comforts us. So Lord, this morning we ask that you would you would speak to each and every one of us what you want us to do about what we've heard today. Then, Father, as we come to this table, we ask that you would, you would speak to us through these elements that you've given us, through this bread and through this wine. We thank you that on the night that he is betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he told his disciples that this bread is his body, his given for them and for us. And we are to eat this bread and remember him until he comes. And then the cup was given and thanked or thanked for. And that was represented the blood of Christ. And we understand that without 
blood, there is no remission of sin. We understand also that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and makes us white as snow. So as we come to this table, we will see these elements. We will consume them. We will be spoken to by Christ. And Lord, help us to understand that we are forgiven and there is grace and mercy for us. We ask this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Before we come to the table, I want to, of all things, go to the Word.